All right, good morning to the faithful, the faithful few who made it out today. Now, I want to know who in the world was here, who in here was praying for winter to not end? No one, huh? I know. I just, I just, I love, I love these kind of, kind of days. You're like, I know there was one kid last night when they were going to bed and they were praying, God, I just want to see it snow one more time. And God did it, you know, and that kid's super happy, you know. Um, my condolences to all you Purdue fans, by the way. Sorry, that was a great game. I am from Virginia, so I have to say that a little bit. So, but um, it was a great game, if you can get a chance to see that one. All right, well, my name is Chris. We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. We're getting towards the end of the book. Uh, today is Hebrews chapter 12, as it was read here, chapter f- uh, 12, 5 through 17. And our title is Jesus is Greater Than the Pain. So let me pray for us as we get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just the, the honesty and transparency um, and the reality just of this passage, um, how God, it hits both with our experiences um, to understand that you know what it's like in terms of what we go through. You know what suffering and pain and hardship uh, is like. You yourself took on human flesh and uh, lived among us and suffered um, with us, as Hebrews has made clear throughout this book. May God you help us today give us perspective. God, as we, uh, as we wrestle uh, through the uh, difficult times of life, um, and God help us uh, be strengthened uh, by it and be able to strengthen one another uh, through these truths we study today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, life is, uh, can be very hard. Um, if you don't know that or haven't experienced that, just give it some time. And, uh, and you'll find that out to be true. The book we are studying, the book of Hebrews, uh, one of the main themes running throughout the book is on the topic of suffering. A lot is addressed uh, throughout this, uh, this book about the topic of suffering. And the writers told us this over and over again. And we saw last week, uh, as we kind of finished up our study in Hebrews chapter 11, we saw that for some, having faith in God produced miracles. Right? It, was, it was awesome. Right? They had faith in God, and God opened the Red Sea, or the walls came tumbling down, and all those things, and it was fantastic, and it was wonderful. For others, they had faith in God, and that faith in God produced suffering. It produced hardship. Uh, some trusted God, and, uh, and they got mocked. Some trusted God, and they got sawn in two. Um, suffering is a big part of our calling, what it means to follow Jesus. The, the word that the writer uses in chapter 12 early on, when he uses that word race in chapter 12, verse 1, that word we talked about last week, the Greek word, you'll hear this in English, right? The Greek word is agonizomai. That's where we get our word agony from. <laughs> the writer's like, hey, life is agonizing, <laughs> right? Life is agonizing. I mean, Peter even talks about this. First Peter 2.21, what it looks like to follow Jesus, says, for to this you have been called. The cross Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so it's important that you grasp uh, this concept both for now and for what is coming into the future. So if you're not suffering today, just, just learn with me today. Help, help this prepare you for the day that's coming because suffering is part of life. Um, if your idea of faith, we talked about this last week, if your idea of faith ends with David conquering Goliath or, da- or Daniel silencing the, the hungry lions, and my friends, you're doomed. If that's, all your, if that's your faith, it ends right there, and that's the definition of it. Your idea of faith must include, as it says here in Isaiah 11, I'm sorry, in, um, in Hebrews 11, Isaiah being sawn in two. It's got to include that as well. In other words, your faith must be in Jesus, not in your agenda for Jesus. You must trust him and how he is working and choosing to work in your life, not just how you want him to work. 
God doesn't always follow the script that you write for your life. He really does. If you look at the readers of this letter, and we've seen a little bit in chapter 10 about some of the suffering that they faced as a result of following Jesus. And I'm sure that that the, the readers of this letter didn't script out their life the way it was currently constructed. Some, because of their faith in Jesus, have lost their jobs. Uh, Some, because of their faith in Jesus, have lost their homes. Some have lost friends. Some have lost family. Some have had spouses leave them because of their commitment to Christ. Ostracism and marginalization was was now how their life was scripted by God. And they desperately needed perspective, right? They need to understand what in the world is going on. And the writer has just hit that every single chapter. You cannot underestimate how important perspective and expectations are. Right? As expect, expectations set appropriately are most of the battle in faith. Just think, just think about that honestly, when the, through the times maybe you really struggled through things. More than half the pain we experience in suffering isn't due to the difficulties as much as it is to the shock or the reality that it's actually happening to us. Right? That's, that's half the battle is like, what is this? How could this possibly be happening to me? We can handle suffering a lot better when we're given kind of perspective, when we understand what it is that may be coming up in front of us. I remember uh, when we, as a, as when Sarah was having our first kids, we had twins right off the bat. Um, I had never held a baby in my life, and I ended up with two, like, three, four-pound infants, you know, trying to hold them like little footballs, um, trying to keep, keep them alive. But I remember when they, we went to the hospital, and she was going to have a C-section, have it early, you know, and I get that whole dress-up thing, and I got the white mask on, and the, the whatever, the gown thing. I don't know what it is, a gown, what it was. I had to put on the stuff. I had to put the stuff on to be in, in the room. And they're, they're, t- they're trying to explain to me, the surgical nurse is trying to explain to me what's about to happen, because I've obviously never seen this before. And basically, she tells me uh, that she's going to get a needle, right, the size of my arm, basically, in the back. Uh, then, then she's going to lose some awareness from all the drugs she's going to be given. She's going to feel the tug, and she's going to lose a, lose a lot of blood, but don't worry about all of that. We're going to put this cheap, thin, uh, translucent sheet between her neck and the rest of her body so you won't be able to see it. You know, how about the sound that I'm hearing at the same time, right? But, you know, they, and they kind of, you know, they lay this out for you. You've ever had this situation? They lay it out for you, you know? It's like, it's going to, if you look now, it's going to be gory, like saving, like the saving Private Ryan storming the beach of Normandy gory, right? It's going to be really bad. You don't want to do that. I did by, by accident. You know, I stood up. I don't know why I did that. I mean, I didn't mean to. It was an accident. I stood up and I, everything on the, her insides was on the outside. And yet I'm looking and she's talking to me. And I'm like, how is this? How are you still alive? I mean, it is, you, if you guys are doctors and nurses, I don't know how you do this. I don't do blood, but I'm like, literally everything is outside. Uh, just cut wide open, you know, this is crazy. But they, they gave me, but they gave me response. They gave me perspective, right? I had two responses I could have said to the whole deal. Yep, it's just as bad as you said it was, or eh, not quite as bad. I guess it's not quite storming the beach of Normandy bad. Um, but they prepare you for the worst, right? They prepare you for everything the worst that's going to happen. They give you perspective. And that's what we find today in Hebrews, right? And he's going to give us kind of perspective on our suffering. He's given us already, at the beginning of chapter 12, the example of, uh, of Jesus who endured suffering and was saying, in essence, look, you're not alone. You know, faith in God many times brings suffering. Be prepared for it, expect it. Jesus faced it, we'll face it. But there's more than perspective that's needed for suffering. We also need to know that it's not meaningless, right? We need to know that what we go through, and it doesn't make any sense to us, that, it, that there is a reason somewhere that I might not know, but it's not meaningless what I'm going through. And so the Holy Spirit, through the text today, is going to tell us that in our suffering, God is our Father, 
you are his child, he loves you, and he's made you part of his family, right? That's kind of the points we'll look at this morning, kind of that whole parental kind of view, you probably heard it read here, uh, to understand suffering. So let's look at number one. God is our Father. So verse 5 uh, asks the question, says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he goes into quote from the book of Proverbs here about the discipline of the Lord. And if you'll notice now, if you go back and read the first uh, four verses of chapter 12, there's a metaphor shift that the writer does. It's actually quite abrupt. He goes from God is kind of like a coach, right? You're running this race, this agonizing race, and God is this coach, and there's people on the sidelines, and they're cheering you on, and there's this whole perspective. And then verse 5 switches, and like, no, God's a father now. And that's important. That's an important metaphor shift that he makes. Um, Because when you're in the middle of suffering, it's not so comforting to think of God as your coach, right? It's more comforting to understand God is a father when you're going through, through that. And so God becomes this kind of coach slash father when we're going through suffering. I remember some years ago, um, one of my, I mean, I teared up watching this. I was watching this, this game live. I don't know if you've seen this or remember this. This is Bob Huggins was a coach at West Virginia. He was, uh, Deshaun Butler blew out his knee senior during a game. And when he blew it out, it was, it was horrific. You know, he hits the floor senior. It's in the, in the uh, tournament. And, uh, and Bob, I, mean, I always remember this, because Bob Huggins runs out, and I actually have a picture of, runs out, and like just like consoles him like a father. If you remember, see, do you remember seeing this, this game? And he just, just, he just sat there right on top of him and just rubbed his face and talked. This, this like rugged coach who's always yelling in the scream and all of a sudden became a dad. And, and that's kind of like what we're hearing here with God, that mat- metaphor here. He's a coach and a father at the same time. And so as a father, he says in the passage here, as a father now, he brings discipline. Now, <laughs> that sounds fun, doesn't it? You're like, that doesn't sound very good. I, mean, I, I thought you said he was a coach. I thought he wasn't a coach anymore. What do you mean? Well, it may, it may sound, when it says God brings discipline, it may sound like that's retribution or may payback of some sort, but that's not the idea of the word. It's so important. A lot of times, I don't do this a lot of times to you, but it's important at times for us to go back and look at the original language and understand what the Greek word that's used there, because a lot of times it really helps us a lot, and this one does. The word, the Greek word here for discipline is the word, now follow me for a second, is the word paideia, okay? Paideia. It's where we get our English word pediatrics from. Interesting. Discipline is pediatrics. For some of you, because your father maybe wasn't, uh, wasn't that loving, it may be helpful for you to think of God, he says a father, as a pediatrician. That's the idea of the word here. A pediatrician, you say, why is that word so important here to understand father and discipline? A pediatrician is a person concerned about the flourishing and development of a child, right? They're concerned about the flourishing and development of a child. It's not always easy. They don't always give them things that the child understands, right? You ever taken a child in to get shots before or draw blood? They don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense at all. But the pediatrician is there for, for their good. I remember when our kids were were really little, we always had these pediatrician visits, right? You're taking them in a lot, and uh, it always freaked my kids out, you know, when they, uh, because as you walk down the hallway, <laughs> all the doors are closed, and you can hear little kids and babies crying. You're like, what's happening in there? I don't know if we're getting, getting the pinch, uh, pinchy-winchy, or if they're getting, like, uh, shots or what. Pinchy-winchy, by the way, is the little pinch thing. I heard that from somebody one time. I thought it was funny. Anyway, so, you know, they're kind of freaked out because you can hear all the babies crying, you know, and they get in their room, and they're like, what's going to happen to us, you know? And the pediatrician walks in, they got a big smile on their face, they give them stickers, you know, and, and they kind of they do their height and weight and all that stuff and ask them some questions, make sure the legs are working right, you know, and they kick stuff and things like that. And so they, they, they begin to understand, okay, they're here for my good. Now, 
Again, even if, even if they had to get blood drawn, it still was for their good, though the kids, I still don't think they quite get that even today. But, but that's God, right? He's a father who, like a pediatrician, is interested in his children's flourishing and development. And get this, he's a, he's a perfect parent who brings pain when necessary, but it is non-destructive pain, okay, that's for the good of the children, just like drawing blood would be. Now, if you fail to see God as a loving father in your suffering, you can have two responses to that, right? There's two responses you can have. If you have children, you've seen these two responses, right? If you don't believe that it's coming from a loving father, you can either, one, you can clam up, kind of seal up, or you can kind of panic and freak out, right? That's the two things. That's exactly what the writer says. Look at the text. There's one that regards lightly the discipline of the Lord and one that loses heart. First, the, the regard lightly is the kind of the stoic response, a clamming response. It's the idea of disdain or, uh, or, or to despise. And that's the person who says, you know what, this, this is going to pass. I got this, right? I'll overcome this. Is this all you got? You know, and they're kind of like the stiffened kind of child, as it were, like bring it on kind of thing. This is the kind of the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and grin and bear it approach. It's the kind of person who endures through suffering uh, that God has brought, but it's, they're not going to be happy about it. They're going to complain about it the whole way. This is, uh, they're going to stew through the whole process. This is kind of the defiant child who gives you that look of death when you discipline them, you know. Um, you know, they, they do what you say, but you may want to sleep with one eye open because you're like, I don't know if this is going to come back to haunt me or not. Some of you laugh because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, second response here is the idea of losing heart, okay? This is, this is the person who kind of freaks out, right? They dismay over the whole thing. This is the child that gets crushed under the discipline. They feel like a constant failure. They go all Eeyore through the trial, right? Woe is me. I'm under the discipline of the Lord. Life is so hard. Like, it's always this way. And they're the ones who, who kind of look at life and look at suffering and say, there can't be any good reason for this to be happening to me. It's the kind of person who endures through suffering that God has brought, but they're kind of just depressed through the whole thing. But God's goal is not to see his heart on the one hand, not to harden our hearts and also not to clam, and they clam up, nor is it to kind of freak out and get depressed over it. His goal is for us to experience his love for us, for us to become more like him, to see us endure, as we see down in verse 7, to get stronger so that we can, as chapter 13 is going to say, can go outside the camp and make Jesus known, okay? So he, we are his children. Uh, he, he is our father. Number two, we are his children. Look at verse 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are, uh, you have, you are illegitimate children, not sons. So the writer tells us the reason God disciplines us is because, simply put, we are his children. Right? That's why he does it. He cares, again, about our flourishing and development. Think of it this way, right? especially you who are, who are parents. The parent who doesn't discipline their child does not love their child. It's part, plain and simple. It's throughout Scripture. A parent who doesn't discipline their child is more concerned about themselves right, than the good of the child. I don't want to get involved in this mess. But God's not a passive parent. He's an active parent. He's very much involved in our lives. You ever been around a, a child before who's never been disciplined in their life? Ever seen that before, right? You're at the store or something, right? Parents are, uh, parents are like, we, we don't want to say no because it may hurt their inner child, right? So we don't say no to them. Um, is that an enjoyable experience for anybody? No, it's not an enjoyable experience for anybody, right? It's like getting hit in the head with a ball-peen hammer. It's not fun. Not a good idea. It's, it's, just irrit- it's not just irritating, though. It's also very sad. It shows a lack of love for the child. They're setting that child up for failure, right? They're letting them go their own way, and that's not a good idea. 
God is like, God is telling us here in this passage, look, I love you too much. You're mine, so I will discipline you. I will make life difficult at times because I love you. And it may not make, make sense to you because you want to go your own way, but I love you too much to let you go your own way. But children not only need structure and discipline from loving parents for the sake of their development, they need to understand that they belong, right? They need to understand that they are meaningful, that they are loved. And there's something that happens deep down in a person's soul. If they, if they don't, don't understand that they are loved, right, through the process of discipline, they don't understand that God loves us through the midst of suffering, we lose perspective of that. Again, something deep happens in the soul when a father is there who just ignores the child, never pays attention to them, or a father who's never around the child. There's a deep wound there. And the strange thing is that the ignoring parent actually is worse than the abusive parent. For at least they, they know they, at least you know they see you, right? At least you know that they, they acknowledge that you exist. John Perkins, who's a pastor, described his father, Pap, uh, how he deserted him as a young boy and how he, ran, how he left them. Uh, in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, he said this. He said, I knew then that daddy was, gonna go, uh, was going away without me, but I still didn't turn back. So once more, he came back and whooped me one last time. Just then, my auntie came up. I, I stood between the two of them, neither one saying anything. And then she took me by the hand and dragged me away, back down the tracks toward home. I looked back once, but Daddy was already gone. And with him went my newfound joy in belonging and being loved and being somebody for just a little while. Years would pass before I would know this joy again. I cried all the way back to the house, holding tightly to auntie with one hand and carrying my heart in the other. What was Daddy really thinking? What was in his mind that day he left me? I never found out, but I do know that even when he punished me for following him that afternoon, he was admitting we had some sort of relationship. So we see even in that sad relationship and that kind of distorted view of of a loving father, even the bad discipline and the the wrong perspective, we still see that somehow there was a sense of like, at least I belong. At least I have a sense of understanding I'm, 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 I'm a son. God's activity in our life, even if we perceive it to be negative, at the very minimum reveals that he at least sees us, that we are his child. But this text goes further than that. It says that our suffering does not prove that God doesn't love us, but actually proves that he does. Right? There are plenty of kids uh, you kind of look at and you go, man, if only they were mine. Right? But you, you move on. You move on. You don't discipline them. That would be a bad idea. You get arrested. Um, but with your kids, those whom you love, you don't let them remain uh, the way they are. You see, you see it, you know, you kind of go to them, you see this kid acting out, and you go like, you see that? It won't go well for you if you do that, right? You don't want to do that. Trust me, it's not a good idea. I remember um, out of our four kids, Calvin was our youngest, and one time, one time only, did he drop to the floor and start doing this fit thing. And all the other kids started looking at him like, what is he doing? You know, like, what, what is this? He, he, he didn't do it again. He didn't do it again. But, you know, it's, a, it's kind of that perspective. Like, no, this is our child. This is, we're going we're gonna to love them enough to, to discipline them. Now, they're not going to get it at an early age, but eventually they do, right? They, they will think it is, they may at times think about it, it's too much discipline, it's too long, you're just too mean, you're not fair. If you're a parent, you've probably heard all of these things. And listen, sometimes it's true, right? Sometimes that is true. The discipline is too much or too long, or sometimes it's too little or too short. Sometimes you're mean. Sometimes you're, you're not fair, if you have multiple kids, sometimes you, you even discipline the wrong child for something the other child did, right? This is what happens. I'm not alone in this one, right? Okay. But God is a, is a loving father to his children, right? He knows each of us all the way to the bottom, and he knows how to bring discipline into our lives, degrees of suffering that are exactly right for us to build endurance, strength, and character. 
But we often feel, right, that that's, it's the opposite of love. Uh, as a matter of fact, we sometimes think, when we think of the wrath of God, um, uh, we, think we, we experience suffering, we think of the wrath of God, not the love of God that is the reason for the discipline. And that's because when we talk about the wrath of God, we usually think um, about major catastrophes. That's what kind of our, when I say, give me the definition of the wrath of God, you probably have all kinds of things. I actually Googled, just never really a good definition of anything, but I Googled, like, wrath of God, show me some pictures. And so I clicked it, and here's what came up as a few of the pictures of the wrath of God. I mean, there's apparently, I guess, God in a, in a massive tornado or something, and all these kind of just catastrophe kind of visions of, of what it means to be the wrath of God. And, and at times that can be. I'm not saying it, can, it is not all the time. But I'm, what I'm saying is, though, what if the wrath of God is actually the indifference of God? What if the wrath of God is actually just leaving you to go your own way? You say, how, where do you find that? Well, listen to Romans 1. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. You're like, okay, what does that look like now? Look down at verse 24. And notice a, a, a phrase used three different times here. Therefore... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to what ought not to be done. So in a real sense, we define the wrath of God as God going, I'm indifferent now. I'm just going to, you're not mine. I'm going to let you go your own way, Right? That's actually the wrath of God. The love of God is going, I'm not going to let you go your own way. I'm going to bring suffering and pain to shape you and mold you and make you like Jesus. That's more terrifying than lightning bolts, my friends. The indifference of God. The wrath of God is not just God seeing something sinful and attacking it. The wrath of God is God seeing someone who has abandoned him and walked away, who does not come to him, and just letting them go their own way. That's really the very definition of hell. Hell is the absence of God. It's eternal existence away from God. It is literally abandonment by God. That's what it is. And so if you are his and are suffering, look at it as, as God loving you in this way. I know it doesn't feel that way at times. But God's not letting you go that easily. He's not letting you remain selfish. He's not treating you as a slave or as an enemy or as a traitor or a convicted felon. He's treating you as a son or a daughter. And so the issue becomes, will you believe that truth in Scripture? We believe that you are his children and he's bringing that. Will you let the word of God settle the issue for you so that you don't, in the middle of suffering, turn on God and try to prosecute him with accusations? Listen, he probably will not tell you why it is happening, why it's happening now, or why, it's, why is there so much pain, or why it lasts so long. But he has told us what we need to know. And it's that, it, it, that this is love from an all-wise father to a child. Will you trust him with that truth? Number three. He loves us, right? This is what the writer's going to continue to develop, right? He is our father. We are his children. Number three, he loves us, verses 9 through 11. We've already touched this a little bit already, but look at verse 9. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And he says, uh, shall we not much, be much more subject to the father of spirits and live? They discipline us for a short time as seem best, but he disciplines us for, us for our good. You see the contrast in that? First thing we notice is that discipline here is only temporary. It says here the word is short. It's a short time. Just a child grows up, moves out of the house, no longer needs discipline, or at least we, we hope so. Um, so the child of God is, is brought through this life and into eternity where there will be no more discipline, no more suffering, right? No, no, no more need for that. That's why 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light 
momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But right now, no matter how old we get in this life, we are still considered children of God, right, who need discipline. You realize it. It's not an age thing. It's, it's, it's all of us. We all need that non-destructive pain and suffering so we might share in his holiness, which he's going to get to here. God is more interested in making us like him than letting us stay the way we are because the truth be told, my friends, is God is more interested in your good than you are. Now, of course, just like children, you think you, think you know what's good, right? We, we have what we, we define as this is good for my life. No suffering, no hardship, right? no pain. Just like, you know, your children, like my children have an idea that, you know, a diet of cookies, chips, and Dr. Pepper is really good for them, right? This, is, this would be perfect for us. This is actually be great for us. We will flourish. We will grow with this diet. You're like, no, you don't quite get it. You need something different. But that's, that's what God is. He's more interested in our good than we are. Our parents tried, you know, have tried that and failed. We as parents will, will fail as well, right, in our discipline. That's why he says, as seems best. We do what seems best, but God doesn't do what seems best, Okay, God does not. God does what is best. He's not looking at us like some wizard reaching for potions, hoping that this one will do the trick. All right, I think this one. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try a different one. Like that's not how God does it. That's how we as parents do. We kind of have the trial and error, unfortunately, for our children of like, okay, that didn't work out. Let's try some different kind of discipline. That didn't work at all. Um, and so we're trying to figure out God isn't. Uh, he's while we might be running a trial and error discipline kind of course with our kids, God is not. And listen, again, it won't always make sense to us. But that, again, that's why he's God and we are not. Um, I remember uh, George MacDonald had this real sen- one sentence that's really pretty profound. He said this, Everything difficult points to something more than our theory of life yet embraces. Everything difficult points to something more than our theory of life yet embraces. So what he's saying there is when we, exper- what we, we, ex- uh, when we experience what we feel is unreasonable hardship, right, um, it's because our theory of life is being challenged. We have, a, we have a deal, we have a script we've written, and God has now tore that script up, right? Uh, he had plans, we had plans, and God changed the direction on the map. Many times difficulty, discipline of the Lord comes to us, and a lot of times it's come just to crush the idols in our life, right? They're just there to crush them, and because God's more interested in making us like Him. He's more interested in us being like Him than we would stay in the way we are, more interested in our good, our joy, than we are. J.A. Packer put it this way. He said, still he seeks, speaking of God, the fellowship of his people. He sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. Right? That's part of a lot of what God is doing in discipline. It may feel like God is being cruel at times. It will feel like nothing good can come from the tragedy. Nothing good can come from this trial or the suffering. You'll think that because, because you can't see any good reason that there just must not be one. So we've got to remember, though, we're creatures here. Just because we can't see a reason doesn't mean that a reason doesn't exist. We have the vision of children. God has the vision of a parent. We have the vision of creatures. He has the vision of the creator. We have the vision of the finite. He's got the vision of the infinite. And if God is eternal, and he is, and if God is all-wise, and he is, and if God is uh, able to see all things, omniscient at all places, then that means that God, who sees the end from the beginning, and we only see a little tiny sliver can have reasons we cannot see or possibly understand, right? Is that the very definition of God's wisdom? If that's who he is, if he's all wise and we're, you know, semi-wise maybe, you know, in that way, there's, there's got to be a reason that he understands that we can't possibly understand. So he says in verse 11, for the moment, 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here we see more of the love uh, of our Father to us as children. It will be painful, but it will be worth it. God's discipline is like, kind of like medicine or surgery, or maybe better even think about it as physical therapy, right? Um, we, may, we willingly endure. If you ever gone through physical therapy, you understand this, right? It's difficult. We endure them for the sake of the end result, better health. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that it will, it will result not just in fruit in our life, but peaceful fruit, sweet fruit. It will be the fruit of a changed life, the fruit of a Christ-like life. God has to chisel out. He's chiseling away, all right? He's, and he's, he's creating something, a piece of art for us in our life, what he's doing. Lastly, we are a part of a family. We're part of a family. So we've seen that we're, we, are, we are his children. God is our father. He loves us, and we are part of a family. So the writer's going to tell us that God hasn't left us here to suffer alone. He has placed us in a family, and we call that today the church. And we're all suffering together. We're supposed to help each other suffer well. Because there'll be times where you'll suffer well and times you don't. And there'll be times where others around you suffer well and times that they don't, right? And we have to help each other through the difficulties of life. But before he gets there, he has one verse here that's a very pointed application to us as individuals first. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather be healed. Okay, that's a pretty strong statement. And the point is this, it is incumbent upon each individual in the, in the church, and Paul will say this in Galatians 6, to bear his own weight, bear her own weight, carry their own load, to begin walking this path of discipline, embrace it as coming from the Lord. We each have that personal responsibility. And so Jesus is saying, don't be discouraged, right? I'm not, I'm not picking on you personally. This is for your good. But if you fight me on this, it's not going to go well for you. That's basically what the verse is saying. God's going, listen, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious about your good. I'm serious about your joy, that you would better not brace your feet and try to fight me on this one. You better straighten up your feet, as it were. Come, and, come where I'm commanding you to come, or, or something may get put out of joint. That's basically what he's saying. And I'm going to have to carry you. It's not a threat. It's a promise. And it's a loving promise. God is trying, not trying to, to scare you. He's trying to protect you from you. He knows that, that we resist, when we resist his, his work in our life, many times we try to fight him on it, but he's, it's, it's not going to go well for us if we do that. Um, we've talked about this before. We talk about sheep and shepherds before, but when a, when a sheep is lost and a shepherd finds them, you have to understand that the sheep that is lost and is hurt and is, is in a difficult time and has run away is not in a good, not in a good place. Right? They're not like a purring kitten that's going to run up and kind of snuggle next to your feet. Okay? They're, they're kind of spazzing out. A lot of times the shepherd, the sheep would bite them in that scenario. They're trying to rescue them, but they're, you know, and sometimes, in rare cases, the shepherd actually has to break a leg of a sheep and carry him home because, he has to, because he's fighting him so hard, there's no way he's going to get him back without having to, do, having to break a leg to actually get him back and carry him back home. And that's kind of the idea here. Uh, this is what God is saying. He disciplines us for our good, but sometimes... That might mean if we resist, he has to bring some pain there. We're better off letting him do his work. One of my favorite stories, you know I love quoting C.S. Lewis, but I love the um, Chronicles of Narnia series. And my favorite story of all of the stories in that series was the one where Eustace, he turns into a dragon. This is in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you're familiar with the books. He turns into a dragon, or he put the bracelet on, and he turns into this dragon. And in the, in the book, and don't, don't watch the film, it was horrible, but if you read the book, <laughs> it actually shows that he's, he's trying to peel off the skin. He's trying to get the scales off, and he can't. Every time he peels the scales off, 
he, uh, he, it grows back onto him again. He can never turn into a boy again. He keeps, the dragon's skin keeps coming back on him. And so he meets Aslan, who's the lion, right? And they're face-to-face, kind of tense part, part of the book. The dragon's facing the lion. And the lion says, you're going to have to let me undress you. You're going to have to let me take it. The only way it's going to come off is if I do it. And in the story, Eustace, the dragon lays down, you know, and the, and the lion has to take his claws and has to peel the skin off of him himself. And here's how, the, how Lewis put it. He said, the lion said, you have to let me undress you. And this is Eustace talking. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear, a tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done, done it myself uh, the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I, was, then I saw why I turned into a boy again. Right, so it took, it took Aslan having to do it. And he tried it himself. He tried to fix it himself. Right? It didn't hurt. <laughs> Aslan did it. It caused a lot of pain, but they needed that. And so the writer's going to say, hey, we need to each have our own personal responsibility. We need to carry our own weight, but we also need to help each other. And that's what it gets there in verse, tw- verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the word strive is where we get our English word uh, persecute from, right? It's what the word means. It's in the plural here. So basically it's saying, right, y'all or you guys, depending on what part of the country you're from, you know, as a church, go hard after peace together. Now, that's interesting. Now, I remember reading this and going like, now, why does he say basically in your suffering, know God's a loving father to his child and seek after peace and holiness together? And I'm like, I don't quite understand the connection to those two. It seems strange at first. But experientially, have you ever been around someone who is wounded, who's been hurt? You ever been around someone who's suffering and they're not doing well, right? If they're not doing well, does that usually lead to peace or to conflict? usually leads to a little bit of conflict, relational conflict there, right? They're suffering, not doing well, and they kind of take it out. You have a, a hurt dog, you go up to try to help them, they may bite you, right? I mean, it's just, they may be yours, but they're in pain. And that's kind of the idea here. The writer's saying, guys, if you're struggling under the weight of my discipline, don't take it out on each other. Learn to lean on each other. Learn to gain strength from each other. Learn to gain endurance and courage from each other. Sometimes, in this agonism I have life, this agony, agonizing race. Someone, someone goes down the track. It happens. They go down. We cannot and we must not run past them and ignore them. We are family. If someone goes down, we as a family go over and we pick them up. Yeah, we may have to put our arm around them. They have to lean on us and we got to keep running, right? And we're going we're gonna to keep going. We're gonna, all going to help them limp along until they get enough strength to run. Because you know what? We're probably going to pull up lame at some point. We're going to go down and we need someone else to come alongside of us and pick us up. And that's the idea of the language. Keep striving together. One goes down, pick the other up. So verse 15 he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And he talks about here this root of bitterness, and he brings up Esau, which you're going like, what in the world is the connection to all of this? 
And what the writer is saying is that we need to keep a close eye on each other as we go through suffering. There's some very specific things we need to watch out for because life is agonizing and it's hard. And there's some things that can easily come up. We can easily quit, want to quit, get bitter, or isolate ourselves. Those are the three things. Those are the three things we as a family have to look out for amongst ourselves. Those who quit, those who get bitter, and those who want to isolate themselves. And so the first possible response here to the discipline of the Lord is that some want to quit. Right? They want to raise the white flag. They want, to, they want to quit in the middle of the race. They pull something, I don't know, and they, they want to sit down. And as a church, we've got to keep an eye on those who are slowing down. The pace is slowing down, right? They're not running as hard after Jesus anymore. Things are getting difficult. And I say we because I mean that not just us as pastors or deacons. I mean we as a church body have to keep an eye on that. We all have to keep an eye on those who are slowing down. You may have somebody right now in your mind you're thinking of, yeah, I know, I know, I know somebody. I know somebody's slowing down. They're, they're not pursuing Jesus as hard as they used to, right? I don't see them as much. Things just, they're starting to kind of fade away. Don't let that happen, at least not on your watch, right? Get involved. Find out what's going on. Don't wait for the pastors to figure it out, right? We're, we're, there's, a, there's a few of us. There's lots of, of us as a family. We all got to look out for each other and looking for that. That's why God gave us the church. So when we individually come under suffering, we have people to help us run and not quit. We will never survive apart from the church, right? We need each other. Next, we have this idea here. He talks about a bitterness. And it's this, he talks about the bitter roots and quotes in my, my ESV version here. This is, a, this is kind of the poisonous person. It's, it's taken from Deuteronomy 29. If you go back and read that story, that's where he's pulling from. And the idea there is we see a, a kind of discontentment that spreads to others in the congregation, and here's how this works out. Here's how this works out. You have a person in the church who looks at their suffering, looks at the difficult, and they go, you know what? I deserve better than this. And you know what the real problem is? It's, it's my spouse. You know what the real problem is? It, you know, it's, it's, it's my boss. You know what the real problem is? It's my kids. What the, you know what the real problem is? Is that, that person in the church. The real problem is that pastor or that deacon. And so this is what starts happening. And it, every, it becomes everyone else's, someone else's fault to attach to it. And so they blame everybody, and it, and it starts spreading you ever seen this happen in the church? It just starts spreading. And other people go like, you're right. It is their fault, right? And then you get, and the church shouldn't do that. We shouldn't jump on each other and go like, yeah, let, let me support that. Let me fan the flame of your bitterness for you. Yeah, I totally agree. You should be bitter. Guys, that's poor, okay? We can't, we can't do that as a church. If someone gets bitter, we need to go around and say, well, let me help. Let's go talk to that person then. Let's go figure it out why, why you feel this way, right? Let's work through this together. Let's not encourage this to continue going. You realize that your, your lack of embracing suffering is coming from a loving father to you as a child. is actually affecting other people and not just yourself. We get so myopic in our suffering. We don't realize the effect that it has on our physical family, our spiritual family, right? Mission of the church. That's why God takes it so seriously. Bitterness is a horrific disease of the soul because you defile everything you touch when you're bitter. That's why he calls it, a, it takes root, right? I don't deserve this. I can't believe this is happening. God's unfair, you become bitter and angry towards others and towards God because he won't make life easier for you uh, because he's, but you don't realize what he's, what he's actually doing. Lastly, we see we got to look out for isolation. we got to look out for isolation. Esau is a perfect example of someone who isolated himself. He literally thought of his family as nothing. That's why it talks about here he abandoned his family, he abandoned his birthright, he didn't think anything of it. He moved out to live a life of isolation from his family. As the text says, he got into sexual morality and infidelity. Point being, it is dangerous out there all alone. His isolation led him to a kind of spiraling downward. 
You know how this works. You get yourself isolated. You say to yourself, you know, I'm hurting. I'm tired. I need to, I need to feel better. You know, you, you go, you end up sinning. You're like, I'm just going to go, go my own way, which, by the way, never works out in the long run, but it brings sorrow, more pain. In Esau's case, it never led to repentance. This is Satan's strategy. We've talked about this a lot, right? He is to get you abandoned. It makes you for easy pickings. You start suffering. You start blaming the church as not meeting your needs or no one cares for you. And you start assuming stuff. And you, can, you know what assuming, the definition of assuming is. I'll let you define that yourself. You start assuming stuff, right? So you got that. You assume certain, you know, this is what happens, right? You, you assume certain looks. And I'm right there with you, okay? This is so true. You assume certain looks mean disdain, right? Oh, they, they just don't like me. You're like, well, maybe had, they had to go to the bathroom. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, seriously. I mean, try to think of it. It's like, oh, they just really don't like me. You're like, you have no idea what's going on there. A, a lack of an invitation. Where everyone else was invited, I wasn't invited. Maybe the invitation got lost. Maybe Facebook had a glitch. You know, I mean, we, we have this perspective that everyone's out to get me. You know, something the pastor says from the pulpit, you know, is directed, he's looking at you personally, he's attacking you personally, and he, he probably has no idea. It's probably true. No idea. Really? No, just kidding. All right, um, I do have an idea. I oh, just kidding. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone individually to devour right? That's what he's doing. That's what he's after. Isolate, get bitterness in there, I'm separate, and then you're off running all alone in suffering, and then it can't have that happen. Guys, listen, if you're in Christ, you're, you're brothers and sisters in Christ, a part of a family of God, then God loves you. He does, and he's bringing non-destructive pain to mold you and shape you into the people that he wants you to be for the sake of his glory and for your own joy, right? That's just what's happening. That is the truth. He's more interested in your good than you are. But it doesn't mean that this one's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that we'll understand it or we'll ever understand the reasons. But there's one thing we cannot say, and this is where the gospel comes into play for us. There's one thing we cannot ever say. We can never say that it's because God just doesn't love us. Because, our friends, we look at the cross. We we can never say that. We can't say God doesn't love us. He's not a detached God hurling lightning bolts and giggling, as it were. He's not indifferent to our plight. The cross tells us that God became man and suffered alongside of us, right? He went through it. But his suffering, think about this, his suffering is so different than ours. His suffering was unique because it was not to make him into someone great because he was already someone great. And his suffering was not to make him share in the holiness of God for he already was the holiness of God. His suffering was not to, so that he could, abstain, could obtain the peaceful fruit of righteousness because he already had that too. His suffering was for a different purpose. He put himself on the hook of human suffering and experienced the greatest depths of human pain so that you and I, so that he could make us sons and daughters of God, so that he could bring about forgiveness and acceptance with God for us. He did this so that you could be loved by God. He did this so that all, all, all that God brings in your life would be for your ultimate good. He did this so that you would never be abandoned, but remain, remain a child of God forever. Think about it this way. Jesus, the Son of God, who had a beginningless relationship with God the Father, would be abandoned. He'll be abandoned on the cross so that you would not be abandoned. 
He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father turned his back on his son at that very moment when he became sin for us. So that God the father, get this, could turn around and look at you and call you son and call you daughter. That's the beauty of the cross. It tells us no matter if we have no idea what's going on and we have any reason why this is happening, we cannot say it's not because he doesn't love us. In the midst of all the chaos and craziness, he does, and he's proved that. So don't think for a minute that what he is bringing to your life is somehow cruel and unusual punishment. He loves you more than you can imagine, right? And he was willing to have his son go through the rejection of the cross so that, so that he could win you. So he would never leave you. That's why Hebrews 13, next chapter, again, is going to end with this. It's going to tell us that Jesus will never leave us and he'll never forsake us because of the promise that he already was forsaken for us. He already bore the sin for us so that now God can call us as children. So as we go to communion and we give our offerings, if you're part of the church or if you're, a, if you're a follower of Christ today, if you're not part of the church, if you're a follower of Christ today, you're a Christian, you're able to take communion with us. There's bread, there's juice, the tables in front and back. We do this in remembrance of him. We're trying to remember as we take these little pieces of bread and juice, the body of Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him on that cross and recalling as we take it today, God, you love me. And maybe you just need to say that out loud. Maybe you just need to remind yourself with these tangible elements as you take it and just say, God, you do love me. You're my father. I am your child. You love me. And I'm part of a family. Help me, God, to contribute to this family. Help me to to bear one another's burdens in this family. Help me to encourage one another and lift each other up. And those who have fallen, help me lift them back up again, God. That's what we want as we focus our time here at communion today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for um, just giving us perspective on our suffering, God. Um, it doesn't always make sense, and we don't even know when it's coming or when it's going to stop or if it ever will stop. But we do know there's coming a time, God, when we're with you on a new earth uh, in the presence where we will be, in your presence where we'll be wrapped up in holiness. Sin will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Sin will be no more. Tears will be no more. There's coming a day where this will end. In the meantime, God, help us as we follow you and we follow in your steps, as 1 Peter 2 says, and as we suffer, that we would see, God, that you still love us in it. Love us enough to, to continue to be involved, not to let us go our own way. God, help us to, to have eyes to see those around us, support each other as a family, um, as children together in your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.